Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. Andy, I don't know if we're equipped for this conversation tonight. <laughs> it, it may be too sweet. Do you think there's some risk that it is too adorable for us? Do we need to follow it up with, uh, you know, some fantastic <laughs> horror film? I think we might. <laughs> I think we might.
the the trailer for Mary Poppins, I think, is fantastic, and it, it's because it came out before uh, the Exorcist. But when when it goes from the fireworks and it's very Disney, it's very you know, look at all the color, animated color splashing across the screen, and and it's a lot of, and then we meet. Julie Andrews and her head starts spinning around like that when she's in the spin. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's scary. It's yeah. Why would kids want to see that? It's horrible. <laughs> Look what they did to this woman, mommy. <laughs> it is a very Save odd first shot to throw in. Horror nanny. <laughs> uh, uh, otherwise, uh, the the trailer was very much of an era. Absolutely, where it it gives you you know a lot of beats of the story. I mean, not so much the uh, the story with the father, but definitely you know you've got a couple um, kind of uh, lengthyish chunks of some of the uh, songs and dance numbers, and uh, it's one of those trailers where it gives you kind of a little bit more of each scene than you normally would see now. And it gives you the ending. Right. <laughs> it shows you the ending. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of okay in a movie like this, right? I mean, it's 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 okay. Everybody, you know, it's this is the resolution and you're going with it for, you're going for the journey. It's not like you expect to be wildly surprised. I guess. It really depends. I mean, it's obviously based on a property. And so to that mm-hmm. end, um, you know, I'm sure they're uh, at this time, I mean, this was, I think, 30 years after uh, P.L. Travers' uh, first book in the Mary Poppins series had come out. And so I'm sure a lot of people were reading it and kind of had a good sense of what to expect with uh, with Mary Poppins and everything. So um, it's yeah. the equivalent of like the remake of Paddington, right? I mean, it's like we know the story. Or Winnie the Pooh. I mean, any um, of these things. Or Winnie the Pooh. Right, right, right. Uh, it, although it's funny because I think that uh, this is, uh, I, I, I didn't know it was a book the first time I saw it. Didn't know until Saving Mr. Banks came out, in fact that Mary Poppins was a series. Is that strange? No, I mean, this is one of those movies that I think you first watch as a kid and, you know, kids don't really read credits. Um, so you kind of skip over all those words <laughs> at the beginning. Kid, Kids are dumb. Exactly. And and you just wait <laughs> to see Mary Poppins up in the cloud and it's more about the images than it is about the words. And right, I think right. to that end, you know, people uh, or, you know, youth starting with this movie aren't going to pay attention to that. And as you get older, you know, I mean, it's it's a not a horrible uh, length. It's not like an overture, like Lawrence Arabia overture sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's it's mm-hmm. a lengthy piece of music. And, um, you know, I can see people kind of tuning out and just kind of drifting and looking at the beautiful matte paintings as as they float by instead of the credits. So I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume that you wouldn't have known that it was a book. I mean, we didn't grow up in the era where, at least uh, you and me, we weren't reading this book as kids. Um, there was lots of music, which I think is appropriate for a trailer like this to show us, to showcase the the kinds of music in here. Uh, we get full verses, and we get, uh, as an introduction to America's favorite funny man, Dick Van Dyke, we get the perfect uh, goofball dance sequence for him, because that's, you know, people had were, were aware of him in a certain way, and, and I think they, they absolutely showcase the Dick Van Dyke that we get in the movie really highlight one of the best sequences for him in just his his uh, capability with physical comedy. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, this was relatively early in his film career. I mean, he had been, as you said, on the uh, on the old TV. But, um, you know, I, I think was, this was a period where um, people like him could jump 
from some of those old TV shows, the Dick Van Dyke Hour or whatever it was at the time. Uh, I think it might have. Was it already the Dick Van Dyke Show? Yeah, it was just the Dick Van Dyke yeah, Show. Yeah, I think so. It was just yeah. the Dick Van Dyke Show. For some reason, yeah. I thought it started as the hour and then moved to the show. But nope, I would be wrong. So, uh, but yeah, he he went from that, and I mean, he'd been in a couple of movies, but not a lot. And then here he is, the trailer guy, the voiceover guy. Uh, I I I just knew the voice sounded familiar. Obviously, it was a voice of Disney, but who was it? It was Dick Wesson. Uh, Dick Wesson is um, no longer with us. He died in 1979, but he was the voice for an era of uh, Disney properties, uh, not just the this movie and, and some of the other classic films, but uh, of Walt Disney's wonderful world of color. Uh, and so his voice was on uh, across television and uh, movie screens uh, for a long, long time, uh, which was very cool. That certainly is something that Disney seemed to latch on to, is finding people who worked well in particular roles mm-hmm. and using them over and over again. I mean, it certainly is the case of the Sherman brothers and of uh, the the two yeah. kids and his animators and uh, I mean, just it, the list goes on and on. There's so many people. Robert Stevenson, the director of this, I think he did, did like 19 films for Disney. So it's definitely kind of the club. And if if he likes you, he's going to keep working with you. Ah, Wesson was dying of cancer when he committed suicide. Ooh. Oh, wow! Oh, that's a downer. That is. And now, Mary Poppins. Fire! Light up the sky. It's the entertainment thrill of a lifetime. Mary Poppins, Walt Disney's newest and most delightfully entertaining motion picture. Starring the toast of Broadway's musical stage, the incomparable Julie Andrews. For a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And America's fabulous funny man, Dick Van Dyke, as you've never seen him before. Mary Poppins, the fabulous adventures of the world's most charming and delightfully eccentric heroine. I can tell you one thing, Winifred. I don't propose standing idly by and letting that woman, Mary Poppins, undermine the discipline of... Something odd, I meant extremely odd about the behavior of this household since that woman arrived. Yes, dear? Goodbye, Mary Poppins. Don't stay away too long. Is the next reel, everybody? I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, director Robert Stevenson brings us a film that is practically perfect in every way. It's 1964's ultimate nanny story, Mary Poppins. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the next reel. And if you enjoy hearing this show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations on Discord, listen to the members-only weekend show, and get to help us pick movies for future series, like this one. Just head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. Ow! They're out of the game! I feel like every time I watch this movie, Andy, as I, and probably as I age, I get something completely new out of it. And that's interesting because you were the one who, as we were voting, as we were doing our polls, you were like, oh, I'm really not excited about Mary Poppins. I know. 
Yeah. I know. And I think it was just the act of committing to watching it for the show that I, I finally gave in to it because, uh, you know, we watched it a lot and you get to it where you're just sort of watching it out of habit. But when I watch it closely, this is the first time I realize this is not, uh, it, it's not, it's actually, I know it's just going to make me sound like a complete buffoon. This is not the story of a nanny and the kids. Uh, and in so far as it is the story of Mr. Banks. And I feel like for years, I've missed that. I've missed a major element and a major transformation in uh, a central character. Just because he's not on screen, it's uh, very often, I think it's fascinating that the the story is really about him from the perspective of these kids and how they relate to their father and how their father relates to work and family and life. And uh, it's, there's a lot of movie buried in here. Yeah, there really is. It's, it's uh, a a good mixed bag of lots of things. And I think it's one of those movies that, that people will take different things out of it. uh, Like you were just saying, as they move through life as a kid, the father's story was certainly much less interesting to me. Um, and he was much more of the scary figure that Jane and Michael uh, saw him as. Um, but as I've gotten older and had kids myself and everything, you know, as, as I still find all of the stuff with the kids and Mary really just fantastic and, and beautiful. But yeah, like you said, finding that story about Mr. Banks and that change that he has because of everything going on in his life, I think it's it really um, just hits home now in ways that yeah. it may not have earlier. Yeah, I th- I think that that aging bit, you know, once you realize that you you have kids and you really relate to Mr. Banks in the beginning, that oh my gosh, wouldn't it be nice if the shoes always got put away? Wouldn't it be nice if if the backpacks were always hung up and and clean and proper? Wouldn't it be nice if everybody you know ate in a civilized fashion, not like you know hungry monkeys at the table? Uh, all of those things, you you have these sort of classical demands built up in the back of your mind, and and realize of course that we we don't get that anymore. Uh, but but then you you sort of take it to that next level of watching him evolve and see the gift that is his family, wherever they are, and uh, the gift that comes from helping them solve problems as small as taping up a kite. Like, it's, uh, it ends up being um, a really beautiful thing. I, I, I have some mixed feelings about P.L. Traver, Travers uh, and uh, her role and feelings about uh, the production, uh, just having read up on it in over the course of prepping for the show. And... I I think, and I don't know anything about the background of Saving Mr. Banks, but I think this movie is even better with Saving Mr. Banks in the world. Yeah, I I can see that it it gives you a perspective. You know, this I have a slight struggle with that. In that, um, I mean the the Saving Mr. Banks script. My understanding is that it was actually written as kind of, I don't know if it was completely spec, but it was definitely a script that wasn't written for Disney. It was just out there. In fact, I think the person who wrote it was more on the P.L. Travers side of the fence. Yeah. And But it's one of those scripts that's like, how is anyone going to be able to make this except for Disney? You know? And yeah, so I think right. it became a little more uh, Disney sanitized. Uh, P.L. Travers, you know, I mean, she she enjoyed the film, but she told Walt that, you know, she felt all the all the animation needed to be removed. Uh, you know, is too much for her. And she uh, didn't really like the way that she was treated, and she never agreed to do a follow-up film. Um, and so it it actually really piques my curiosity as to how they got the current 
Mary Poppins Returns sequel off the ground. And I'm wondering if it has to do somehow with Saving Mr. Banks. Like, I wonder if that was some catalyst to, okay, we're going to tell P.L. Travers' story uh, through Disney's eyes, but it's going to allow us to get that sequel off the ground that we've always wanted to do. Well, and the fact that it is, it's gone on to other formats, right? The, yeah. the musical and all sorts of things. I mean, it's just, it's clearly expanded outside those original, original kind of constraints. But I'm curious, though, given all of that, does Mary Poppins, this film, disrespect the original work inappropriately? And does it do so for the greater good? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the question, right? I mean, because there are obviously things in the books that P.L. Travers, um, was disappointed and hurt that they weren't included. Um, I mean, Mary Poppins was not nearly as likable in, in the original books. She was much more strict and pompous. And here she is, you know, she's kind of got that little uh, gleam under her eye that uh, I think works really nicely. But what it does is give the uh, kind of, I, I would say it's like any great adaptation, like Lord of the Rings or something. It takes the essence of what's there and puts it forth in a way where, yes, they're changing things for the cinematic world of storytelling, which is a very different type, but doing so in a way that I feel is respectful. That being said, I've never read the books, but at least... <laughs> well, that was my next question. I haven't either. Uh, you know, obviously, I, I have shunned them. Uh, I, you know, shunned. and <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I have no reason to have any negative feelings about the book whatsoever. But uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I've shunned them. Um, anyway, uh, I've never read them. My understanding is that, yeah, as you say, the, the nanny is less likable, uh, that there is less of that sort of frivolity uh, involved. Uh, and um, in that respect, I, you know, this mix of animation to me was absolutely the right call. This It fits the Disney spirit and the tone. It makes this movie about uh, an uptight babysitter in Edwardian London approachable. Uh, can you imagine this movie for kids without it? Uh, without any of that? And I assume a lot of that animation might include getting rid of some of the other, you know, sequences of animatronics, right? Or, or of any sort of stop motion stuff. And, and um, you know, the, the room cleaning in particular, Spoonful of Sugar. Um, I, I assume that was probably over the top, and I, but I, I don't know. Um, so I, I think that all of those things make this as, as kind of a long film uh, approachable for kids. And my goodness, you know, I'm I'm thinking the whole time, is is this movie from 1964, does it hold up for today's audiences? And I, I mean, I could not watch this movie. I was watching it with headphones on in my living room on the TV, and my wife and my kids were standing over me on the stairs in silence, watching it with me <laughs> in silence for, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes at a time, uh, just giggling along right with it. Yeah, absolutely. It's one, you know, I told my kids that I'm watching this for the show. And I'm like, do you want to watch with me? Oh, maybe later. And, you know, they both found other things to do. Um, But then as I put it on, and I was watching it, uh, you know, within a half hour, they were both curled up by my sides, just sitting there engrossed in it with me. It's, Mm -hmm. It's just one of those films, I think that that is very uh, palatable. It's a wonderful spoonful of sugar. (laughs) See what I did there? Oh, oh, that was so cute. (laughs) Breaking the fourth wall. Bert does this uh, uh, as a gateway into the story. And um, I, you know, he's an interesting sort of avatar because we have him. He introduces us to the story and then we'll lose him for 
long stretches, we don't have him with us. And, uh, and so I guess the question is, how does that, that fourth wall uh, destruction, does that work for you? Yeah, I thought about that quite a bit, because it's definitely um, something that's in the Disney ilk. It, you know, it's something we've seen quite a number of times in other Disney films. Most recent one that I can think of is Aladdin, along with um, uh, The Emperor's New Groove. You know, it, there are times where it works in context of the story when it's a film that, you know, it's okay to break the fourth wall. And mm-hmm. this film is breaking so many walls that I really feel that it's totally fine and to a certain extent called for. And, you know, it's it's a great way for uh, Bert to be welcoming us into this world. I, I really enjoyed it, actually. Well, and it greases the skids for Mary Poppins to welcome Bert into the world later. Like, it's his, right. he's sort of an important enough character to us that it makes sense uh, emotionally for, for him to be connected to her. And clearly, those two have a serious thing going on. <laughs> it's funny that you say that. Uh, Julie Andrews and, and Dick Van Dyke, in talking about this film, they're just, uh, you know, she is very much, you know, talking about how wonderfully strong their platonic friendship is. <laughs> no <laughs> which, way. which makes me laugh because there's that great moment when they're in the Jolly Holiday sequence in the animation, and she's talking about all the wonderful things about Bert. And she's saying things to him like, oh, gosh, I wish I could remember them all. But it's like, you know, you're you're never one to take advantage and all of this. And he just kind of yeah. he kind of gives her this look like, oh, dang, lost my chance. You know, there's almost that little hint of it like or she knows totally. and he knows, but she's letting him know that she's not interested. Oh, I think we're at a whole different point in their relationship. And I I hope that it's something like I, I know that there's history. I know he was in the military and uh, I'm sure that they ran into each other in another port in a pub somewhere. <laughs> and there is some backstory there where they they I'm just saying they might have woken up uh, in in, you know, a seedy hotel room, uh, you know, all full of regret. And now they have to they have to make good. And I, I feel like there's another movie here, there's a prequel here <laughs> that I want to see. I bet P.L. Travers would love releasing <laughs> that part of the story. <laughs> there's some, there's some just juicy Ralph Bakshi style animation that I'm going to put in this God. one, though. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh Lord, oh, that's yeah. not where I, I, I wanted to go. With that. Oh man, Andy, once again, the next reel is coming up with just <laughs> cinema gold. <laughs> <laughs> okay oh, mary poppins prequel uh very excited for that admiral boom you don't like admiral boom you know it's just I, I i i feel like it's an element in here that i mean yes it kind of fits this quirky world but i i always end up feeling like you know it might just be across the line of, of the world of everything else going on here you know the fact that this old man has a boat basically built on the top of his house <laughs> and he's always like lighting his cannon uh to tell the time and uh attack the hottentots <laughs> <laughs> okay i i actually i don't understand it I don't understand him as a crazy old man. That's the thing. But I like him. I think he's charming. And uh, part of the reason I think I like him is because I love what it does to their living room. 
every time the explosion happens, the cannon, that it tosses all of the furniture asunder and that everybody has to take their positions, I think is a really charming and beautiful way to show how uh, regimented the house is and how well they work together to keep things in perfect order for Mr. Banks. And uh, and so that, that really works for me. How do they do that sort of a sight gag without Admiral Boom? Yeah, uh, right. There's not really a great way to uh get away with that um yeah so that's that's one of those elements but you know the other thing and this was not something i ever knew until now i didn't know what hot and tots were <laughs> i just looked it up and the dictionary is like noun offensive <laughs> it's like oh so <laughs> Backing the offensive maybe this is one of those yeah it looks like it's a, a british word uh referring to uh you know derogatorily certain people from yeah. africa so it's 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 one of those words that's like, gosh, it probably shouldn't be in here, but uh, yeah, I guess Disney's is. kind of skirted past it because it's, uh, uh, you know, it's not a word that people go around saying anymore. Um, you know, it's it certainly is going to be, um, you know, it's not going to end up as offensive as like if you re-released Song of the South right now, which certainly has some. That would, that would have issues. They, they might have a few problems with that. Yeah. Um, the other yeah, thing that anyway. I the other thing I like about Admiral Boom is Mr. Binnacle, uh, the Admiral's <laughs> servant, because Mr. Binnacle weirdly was dubbed by David Tomlinson, Mr. Right. Banks. What's Isn't up that with weird? that? I don't know. That's that's one of those weird things. And sometimes I wonder if that's uh, that's the case of either they didn't like the guy's voice or was it um, where they they paid the person as an extra or something and then they had to use somebody else to put the voice in. I don't know. But it's just it's a weird thing. It's very strange. I mean, because it's not like the the actor is Don Barclay, and it's not like he's been in. Uh, he hasn't been in very many movies. I mean, he's got ninety four credits. He's been in a bunch of Disney stuff, uh, and um, and so he's got a, a significant history. Mary Poppins was actually his second to last film, uh, and uh, it was it was he's he's one of those faces. If you look close closely, uh, you end up noticing that you've seen that face in the background in a lot of movies because he's uncredited everywhere. He's like the <laughs> extra. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's interesting to, to kind of watch him and watch how he kind of moves in and out. So I, I actually, I found it quite charming to the Admiral boom sequence. I don't, the, the boat, the whole boat with the rigging. I, I don't know. That was, I, I don't get it, but what yeah. it allows us is cool. Well, and it does allow us the fireworks uh, at the end, which it, you know, yeah. adds for a fun element within the step in time song. Right, right. The actor uh, who plays Admiral Boom, uh, Reginald Owen, Reginald Owen, he was uh, one of the, uh, some people say, the classic um, uh, Scrooge, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, he, yeah, that's his, his quintessential sort of picture. Uh, yeah. he's, that's how he's, he's always got the hat on. Uh, but he's been in a lot of other stuff. And, and uh, uh, one of my f- very favorites... Uh, which uh, I'm going to say now at risk of ruining uh, the Saturday matinee for my own dear self. He was also in one of my very favorite follow-up uh, films to this, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Right, that's a fun uh, one. And uh, I, yeah, he's he's great. Yep. 146 credits, that guy, Reginald Owen. He's a busy dude. He is. Busy, busy boy. Uh, another highlight for me, and this is, I'm going to jump almost to the end, Um because you know there are musical numbers that are fantastic. We're going to talk about one for our deep scene dive. But the the tuppence scene is 
is a standout sequence for me, right? And it's it's when uh, the kids go to work with dad and they take their tuppence and they invest it in the bank, or that's the, the idea. We're going to invite the kids to make their first investment in the bank and the kids say, no, I'm not going to invest my tuppence. And then there's a big hoo-ha and, uh, and, and it causes a run on the bank. That's a remarkably sophisticated concept for a movie like this. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, there's definitely a strength to that moment. And actually, it's one of the songs, it was never one of my favorites. And I'd say it's still not one of my favorites, but it certainly has grown in importance uh, for me. Again, like we were talking about earlier, because of the story of the father and really kind of how this is that real break kind of in in the uh, relationship between uh, uh, father and son or father and children. Father and children, and and the beginning of the redemption, uh, you know, and I, I think that's, um, you know, it's that that's this is the ultimate low, the emotional low, um, yeah, you know, when we realize that the the kids are are adrift without their father, uh, and and so it's it's fantastic, but it's also this whole concept of the kind of economics of banking and the fragility of fiat banking uh, in at this period, and uh, I I think it's. I think it's really fascinating uh, that 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 has become kind of a major part of this. And this is the thing I'm most curious about reading the books. Uh, does you know does P.L. Travers speak with this level of uh, sort of sobriety uh, about something that is so important to uh, you know countries' well-being uh, as financial security in these kids' books? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's a it's a very interesting element that uh, does kind of surprise you that it pops up in this film. And the fact that Dick Van Dyke is uh, also in this sequence uh, is n- not to be overlooked. He is, uh, yeah, I mean, aside from his accent. Well, and you know, his accent in this sequence is is actually r- much better than his accent is. It's Yeah, Mark. it's not the Cockney accent. It's, no. it, he, he gives you this presence. I, I guess, yeah, that's something like, you know, inevitably uh, Dick Van Dyke will always struggle with that probably regardless of proper British or Cockney or whatever. But you're right. I mean, what he does give you is a really fun to watch old man that I don't think could have been cast by somebody that old because, you know, he's doing some things that are a little more, you know, I I don't want to call them stunts, but it certainly is, you know, it's, it's careful work that a younger person probably needs to do. Watching him get off the step is, is I think my favorite moment with him. Oh, I just love when he falls forward and then falls backward. I I think that's just that, that pivot and the stiffness in his legs and hips. And it's just a very um, mechanical uh, set of movements. And I'm, I think he's just incredible. Uh, As Mr. Dawes senior, he was, um, uh, he credited as Navkid Keed uh, (laughs) anagram for Dick Van Dyke. Uh, Really Great stuff. So that's yeah. that is, I, I think, the the real high point for me. For me, I would say that my high point in the film is uh, "Feed the Birds," which I've always found it to be an incredible lullaby, you know, which is kind of what it's introduced as in the film. But also, this is a song that I think gives that sense of the story about you know it's the little things, you know, it, it's helping people. It's just it's just doing a small thing. And uh, I, I find it so powerful and just watching that sequence, which all feels like you're kind of watching it within her snow globe, uh, which I totally want that snow globe where when you shake it instead of snow, it's like little birds <laughs> fly around. Yeah, it's right? just, that was awesome. I don't know why Disney isn't selling those in their parks but or in their Disney stores, but um, 
it's it's a great uh, song, and it hits me every time. And that to me, it's almost like the the perfect counterpoint to uh, the Tuppence song. You know, the Fidelity Fiduciary Bank. This this one is all about the opposite of that, and finding those little things that in life that actually make you happy. So, let's talk a little bit about Mum. Uh, Glynis Mrs. Johns. Mrs. Banks. She's mm-hmm. she's an interest, really interesting character, and I think she is dismissed uh, all too often when talking about this movie. But I think she, uh, and, and again, Mr. Banks, not in the film all that much. Mrs. Banks, when we get her, uh, she's charming and daffy, and then we don't have her anymore, and I think we forget. But what to to me, she represents something much much greater uh, in this movie. What do you think? Well, it's it's an interesting role, and I I agree with you. I feel like they start down the road with the whole suffragette movement, uh, Sister Suffragette, which is a really fun march that she sings. Um, but then I always feel like, but then you know, at home, like she's completely not the suffragette. She always is acquiescing to her husband, and yes, George, yes, George. Um, and so I find it really interesting the way that she's written. And I don't know if that was an intentional choice or if it just is how it came out. But I, I don't know. I, I just find it interesting. I find it really interesting because, yeah, that's her her sort of um, her drive outside the home. And, and how well does she parallel the the chaos that is sort of modern working motherhood, right? The stresses yeah. that are on my and, and, you know, of course, she has. A whole bunch of nannies that are taking or and and housekeepers and cooks that are actually helping her keep the house, and yet she's still crazed and you know doing something that is obviously for the greater good uh, outside the home, uh, and and yet when she's at home, she's yeah she's she's a complete sort of milk toast to Mister Banks, um, and and I find that really interesting and sort of what does she represent as kind of the outsourcing mother. Um, where she's outsourcing everything in the home, including the the sort of um, you know the care of her kids. Um, what is the statement that she's that she's making that she take? And I think I would probably take away more if I was a, a harried, stressed working mom too. Yeah, it's it's interesting though because it, it it made me think of um, you know uh, bored rich housewives who are like you know I'll pay a nanny to take care of my kids because that's not. That's not something that's going to spur me on, and and here she is going and joining these movements and everything, but only well, outside. Well, it's more the house. than bored, bored rich housewives, though. I mean, what she's really doing, and the suffragette movement is. It was a, I mean, <laughs> there's no way to sugarcoat. It was a big deal. Oh yeah, and 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 like so, she she wasn't just bored and eating bonbons, so she hired out help. It like she 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 gave her her sort of life and attention to something outside the home and never quite reclaimed it. And this isn't her story of reclamation, right? It's the story of Mr. Banks's reclamation. But I, I find it interesting because there is a story of reclamation to be had here. But still, she never brings it home. And so yeah. that's what's interesting about it is, and I'm not saying she is a board rich housewife. I'm saying she reminds me of board rich housewives who, you know, would rather uh, have their kids with a nanny so they can do things. Not that I'm judging, but a little bit, you're judging a, a, little, bit. Little, judging a little bit, but it's, it, but it's one of those things where it's like, uh, I don't know. I guess I, I find her, uh, I don't know. I, I, I just find her interesting. Um, I don't know if I have really any answers with her. I enjoy her on screen, but I'm mm-hmm. always a little perplexed. 
Gallant ladies in prison are waiting for me to lead them in song. <laughs> the chimney sweep dance is a, another real highlight for me. I, it, visually, it is the most sort of stunning, and the choreography in here is is um, just top notch. Yeah, and you have this uh, Dick Van Dyke who never really had taken dance lessons, and here he is, just you know, in top form, doing some amazing dances with all these guys. And the one that I actually I saw this and I had to back it up and watch it again. So there's this shot where he's on on the roof on the left side of frame. He runs down, jumps off onto the 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 flat roof, and does a does like a uh, somersault, and then he runs to the to the wall on the opposite side. He jumps up, and um, as he jumps, he turns and sits on it, and then he does a back roll over, jumps up, and starts dancing again, <laughs> all in one shot. And I was just like, that that is really impressive the fact that he just did that it really kind of uh, blew me away how how limber and uh, wonderful he was you know to to watch him talk about the whole experience of being a song and dance man in this movie and then you know that he's been as he says singing and dancing ever since uh, which is which is true i mean you sort of know him now as a musical song and dance guy uh, and and it's really become part of his 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 gig uh, but everything about it is fan- is is just fantastic because of the you, you know the um, you know the matte paintings are just I think beautiful the you know the set where they end up doing the the um, uh, the the dance on the chimneys uh, you know as they're all in different sort of stacked relief uh, I think that in silhouette I mean just the use of silhouettes uh, the use of light and then of course the fantastic effect of of the the spongy staircase it's just it's all exceptionally good for me it's just it's it's just excitingly done and yeah the rooftop stuff was just exhilarating to watch like when they're dancing uh right on the line between two buildings with like the gap all the way to the ground below them and and obviously there it's wire work which is all through the film but how exciting was it to watch these dancers kind of jumping back and forth, uh, you know, with with one feet on one foot on each roof, and then then they kind of um, almost like dove and caught the ledge with their feet, and then flipped over and grabbed it with their hands and pulled themselves up. And I was just like, man, that is just really exciting choreography. I know it's just brilliant. It's brilliant. It is exhilarating the whole way through. It's just great. Yeah. Unrelated to anything, Andy, there's a doorbell on the bank. <laughs> I've never seen that before. And butlers that just stand around in the dark. Yeah, it's it was kind of a strange <laughs> moment. And, and then they all kind of march. The butlers they follow him. It's like yeah. it's some creepy. And then they go into the room, and it's like something out of Eyes Wide Shut. It's like yes. gothic horror yeah. bank. <laughs> it was so good. What is going on in the dark? <laughs> it is amazing, beautiful shot of the of the table, the board table in spotlight. And everything else is black uh, in this, what uh, must be a warehouse of some sort. I mean, it's just fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's so. one of those things where Disney, uh, you know, when he was making movies, and I think this goes through a lot of films until it seems recently where they weren't necessarily scared of throwing in some some kind of creepier elements for the kids. Like when yeah. Jane and Michael flee the bank. And then they're running down the alleys, and there's that uh, little lady who's just like, "Come with me, children." And then there's the scary dog, and then of course, you know, the the uh, Bert covered in soot, who yeah. know, they they run from, but uh, until they realize it's Bert. But it's you know, it's kind of creepy. 
Yeah, it's creepy all over the place. That's that's such an exhilarating sequence. The one thing that I always found interesting about this is um, Julie Andrews was uh, was not a movie star. This is her first movie, and um, she had been um, she was kind of the person who starred in the the Eliza Doolittle role in My Fair Lady, both in London and then over in New York. And um, Jack Warner wanted to option that and make the film version, but he didn't feel that Julie Andrews was enough of a star. And so he's just like, you know, we're going to put Audrey Hepburn in because she's a real movie star. And um, and then, of course, uh, you know, she goes on, uh, Julie Andrews goes on to do uh, Camelot, and that's where uh, Disney sees her and brings her on. And uh, so I, I, and then of course, My Fair Lady is, you know, comes out the same year and Julie Andrews wins Best Actress. And uh, in her acceptance speech, thanks Jack Warner for, for giving <laughs> really? her, for, uh, you know, his decision to uh, give her the part, basically, which I thought oh, was I brilliant. It. But it's funny how little things like that uh, can uh, create Hollywood history. Deep Scene Dive uh, is, well, I mean, maybe it's a predictable one. Maybe, but really, I mean, if we're going to pick a musical sequence, I mean, they're all good. We could easily pick any of them. Yeah, they're all good. This is the, uh, it is, uh, we're we're in the park where it's after uh, she has won the animated horse race, after she's also won the hunt (laughs) in the (laughs) horse race, and she's won the merry-go-round. She wins at everything. I don't know if it counts if you you win the hunt if you steal the fox. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's not how it's supposed to work? I thought that was the whole thing. (laughs) That was more of a herding herding event, you know, for the kids. Uh, No, in fact, she's at the window. She's asked, you know, are are there any words to describe your feeling right now, Mary? And she says, yes, in fact, there is one word, and that word is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And that is the the deep scene dive sequence. What do you have to say about this one? This, uh, I think, is exemplifies uh, Walt Disney and um, his team and what they were doing with this film. It's an exhilarating song. It's fun. It's catchy. It's definitely an earworm that you will not be able to uh, leave behind. And it's, it, but it's also done in that fantastic uh, live action animation blend that Disney had been um, working so so hard at. And really, I mean, this was kind of I I don't want to say it's his crowning achievement, but it certainly at the time I think may have been the best example of him doing the work and and with his sodium vapor process, creating this fantastic blend of live action and animation. And not only that, I think what for me was key about this scene is this is a really fun song about a nonsense word. It's just a blast to sing and hum. And this film is full of anecdotal moments like that, where it's just like, you know, this happens and then this happens. And it's it's just kind of chapters from the book and you kind of experience them. But what the film does is it takes little nuggets from those scenes and it finds ways to tie them in. And what I found powerful for me is the fact that this nonsense word, which when the kids are singing it to their father, he's completely upset about it, is mad at Mary Poppins and can't say it. But then it comes to him when he's uh, getting fired from the bank and he uses it and it's it's the, the catalyst that changes him. And I find that uh, the way that there's that, that um, through line for uh, kind of this this song and what it represents 
in the kid's imagination becomes something so much more. I could not agree more. I think that I, I think that is uh, the major payoff of for, of this event happens at the bank that this ends up being a song and once you know that that this ends up being a a song that is much more important to the growth and transformation of dad uh, it makes it even more fun to watch and and to watch her sing it and to watch the song and dance of it all uh, of of van dyke and and her doing their moves together uh, of the animation the way the animation interacts and the way they interact with the animation uh it is uh, really a, a special moment in the film uh that that is so much more than just a story of a nonsense word. The song obviously is amazing. Richard and Robert Sherman, uh, you know, crafted something really, just so special uh, in, in this particular word. Iconic, uh, truly iconic of of the movie. Um, but you know the the way it was written in by you know Bill Walsh and and Don DeGrady and and um, uh, off of the work of Travers herself, I think is just uh, it's exceptional. Well, and it's funny, um, it, now that the uh, Saving Mr. Banks movie is out there, I always get an extra little kick out of it because she had such a problem with nonsense words. And, yeah, right. And the scene when they're singing, when Bert is singing his first song as he's kind of introducing the story, or and he's playing his one-man band thing, and he's singing you know, to the different people around him, and he's looking at the constable, and he says, Constable? Responsible. And she's like, wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. What is that? Responsible. What's responsible? Oh, it's just a word we made up. We'll take it out. <laughs> Unmake it. <laughs> and then he kind of you just see the the um the front of the piano as he just kind of uh quietly shoves supercalifragilistic behind yeah. something else. <laughs> It's it's just it's really lovely, um, uh, fantastic stuff. Obviously, Julie Andrews as Mary Poppins. We've talked about this as her big screen, uh, big screen debut. Um, who, but as a first timer, who else was was in the running for this movie? Well, I don't know how much they were in the running, but they were certainly names bandied about by Walt Disney as he would talk to people. Uh, Mary Martin, who um, is, I think most famous as playing Mary uh, Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. on uh, stage and then betty davis which seems like a strange choice to me she certainly seems more like the pl travers version <laughs> yes yeah, when i yeah. read about it and then angela lansbury who i could see uh, maybe i wouldn't have been able to see her as mary poppins in the 60s uh during the manchurian candidate era but certainly the mrs potts era i can see yeah. her doing it yep yep uh and then uh dick van dyke uh who's uh you know he's Dick Van Dyke. The only thing I wanted to add about this uh, about his accent, it, you know, we've we've already everybody knows, but he does have a fantastic quote, <laughs> which I love so much. He's talking about his accent coach, who's this Irish uh, accent coach, Jay Pat O'Malley, and he says he didn't do do the accent any better than I did, uh, and and he thinks about it. He says, you know, sometimes I notice in the film. I almost get it. <laughs> that's, that's about right. <laughs> that is funny. It's absolutely He's the right. best. He is so the best. Uh, Karen Dotrice is, is Jane Banks. Did you want to say anything else about uh, Julie or Dick? Uh, no, I, I just, I, right. they're fantastic. And yeah. what a pair. Um, definitely a, a group that uh, is uh, well worth watching in anything they do. I did work with Dick Van Dyke. Did I tell you that in uh, Diagnosis Murder? Yes, yes, yeah. you did tell me that. That's true, I, and I had forgotten it. So I'm yeah. glad you told me again. That was uh, you. Have you posted the photo? Uh, probably. That was in your your uh, brief punk phase. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, I was the punk licking the car window. 
Yes, that was me. That was so good. You licked a car. (laughs) Andy licked a car. Oh, good times, good times. But Dick Van Dyke was perfect. I mean, he's just great to be around. He's really fun. And it was a, you know, it was a fun show for him that, you know, he kept very lively on set. Karen Dotrice and Matthew Garber as Jane and Michael Banks. Jane and Michael Banks. They did three Disney films together. And what were they, Andy? The Three Lives of Thomasina Mm -hmm. and Mary Poppins and The Gnomemobile. Oh, I don't know any of those other two movies. I have seen The Gnomemobile and I was really underwhelmed by it. (laughs) Really (laughs) just, it was nonsense is what that one was. That was another effects bonanza that Disney did that was less about kind of blending the animation and uh, the people and more about blending sizes, like playing yeah. with shooting people in different um, sizes and making all these gnomes really tiny. Yeah. So to that end, the effects were fun, but oh, bad film. Uh, I, I, they, unfortunately, uh, Matthew died uh, when he was 21. Uh, uh, but Karen went on to do some more stuff. Um, oh, it looks like all of it TV um, and uh, not a whole lot of stuff. Last thing she did was Young Blades in 2005. These these two are just perfect kids. Like they, and it sounds like everybody treated them on set kind of as kids, and like they they were not always let in on how things were done, and so a lot of their reactions were completely honest. Like when Mary Poppins yeah. pours the medicine, and it keeps coming out in different colors when she's pouring. Like <laughs> like or when they're or when she's pulling stuff out of the carpet bag. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, uh, which is fantastic. Oh, because again, what did we establish early on in the show? Kids are dumb. <laughs> it is sad. You, you mentioned Matthew died. He got hepatitis while traveling in India in the late seventies, and uh, it uh, spread to his pancreas, and he died from pancreatitis. Ah, oh, so sad. Yeah, so so very sad. Uh, David Tomlinson as Mister Banks. Um, he is suddenly my favorite character in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I clearly related to him most uh, this time around. Well, and he is one of those guys who seems like he is this person, you know? Uh, like, yeah. he's that kind of that stuffy, pompous British guy who knows uh, more than you do. You know, it's kind of the same in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and I can't remember him in The Love Bug. Lo- but, Love Bug is Thorndike. Yeah. he's He was <laughs> definitely one of those guys who was in all sorts of stuff. And... uh yeah, he's a he's a fun actor. I enjoy his his pompousness and and at the same time his sort of sensitivity and warmth in the last oh, yeah. sequence of this when he's when he starts laughing about you know what's the name of his other leg. I, it's just it's just brilliant and such a perfect turn because he does this this stuffy uh, British banker so well. Um, so I'm I think he's just wonderful and. Um, um, you know, he's been around a long time. It's really the turn he has with Bert. Um, yes. You kind of watch as yeah. Bert is kind of giving him that last speech. And, uh, and you see kind of in his face as he's kind of taking all of it in and really thinking about things. And I find that quite powerful. And uh, although it, it did make me question, and I, you know, this is a question to run past you, because it's always interesting to talk about our protagonists and their role in the transformation within the film. Here we have Bert doing the transformation, not Mary Poppins. And I was like, hmm, I wonder, I, I mean, in reality, I don't really have any issue with that. But it did make me stop and think that it's interesting that, I mean, Bert is the guy who kind of helps turn Mr. Banks. 
I think so too. I think it's fantastic. I, I think it's, um, uh, again, it, it, to me, it cements the fact that Mr. Banks is, uh, is sort of the, the principal anchor of the emotional narrative of the film, and that even Mary Poppins is nothing more than a catalyst for change elsewhere. She is largely, uh, you know, I, I think because we, we already have a turn for her, but it's earlier in the film and it's not as concrete, right? It's not as sort of heartwarming uh, where you actually see him realize that he that that life could be different if he was a different kind of person if he interacted with it differently right that we get yeah. with Bert, uh, but with hers you know she's actually she plays him and as it seems like most people pl- end up playing him uh, over the course of the film she's you know she tricks him into thinking it was his idea to send the kids to work uh, and and start the entire sort of uh, that that entire slide toward his realization uh, that he needs a new relationship with his kids it all starts with her and Bert's the one who sort of comes in with the hat trick right he comes in and 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 just nails it home um but again they're all they're all sort of a function of of you know catalyzing transformation would it have been any different if it had been mary poppins is there something about the the discussion of uh, having it come from a man uh in this particular sequence having that sort of of conversation with him man to man so to speak that that makes it uh more powerful or more relatable for mr banks i kind of feel it would be a uh it would have to be a very different script to actually build to that point because by the time that Mr. Banks and Bert are having this conversation, Mr. Banks is so furious with Mary Poppins anyway. You yeah, know, right. I, I don't know if, uh, regardless of gender, I don't know if that would have come into play without really a very different path to get us to this point where they could have had that confrontation. But going off of what you were saying that I, I think is kind of interesting is you get to the end of the film and Mary Poppins, you know, and her parrot is just like, oh, they're going to forget you. Um, and she's like, you know, it was, you know, she says, you know, the kids are going to love their father more than you or something. And she's like, as it should be. Yeah, as it and should that's, be. that's, I think what was really interesting about this character, Mary Poppins, and perhaps why we need Bert to be that catalyst. Cause Bert is a real character in this world. Mary Poppins is kind of this magical, uh, you know, nanny McPhee who flies in and, and changes things and then flies out because in a way she is meant to be forgotten as the relationship repairs and and they move on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's uh, that's it. And that's why she is, insofar as she is the most important to the film because of her name, uh, she's, she is not the most important character in the film when it comes to the, the sort of emotional uh, arc. Yeah, right. As it should be. As right. it should be. But I don't want to, to leave without talking to you, Andy, about Edwin. Oh, Edwin is uh, so great. Um, he, you know, it's funny. He is one of those guys who was kind of uh, a, a little bit of a Disney standard. Like he would pop into things. Apparently Walt loved casting him. I mean, he's the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. He was in yeah. Babes in Toyland. He's just got, and he's in the Nomobile, my <laughs> favorite film. Uh, <laughs> you know, he did a lot of Disney films and he's just so fun as Ed Wynn. I mean, he's just a, just a kooky, kooky guy who I think when he did this was like in his 60s or something, something way up there. Yeah, he's up there. Well, I don't know. No, he, because he he died at 79. And he was, so he's 77 years old when when he did this film. When he was hanging from the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. 
I love him. I love his song. He's also in the diary of the diary of Anne Frank. Oh wow! What? There's a <laughs> one of these things is not like the other. Alice in Wonderland, Mary Poppins, Babes in Toyland, The Diary of Anne Frank. <laughs> that is so funny. It's a comedy, and there's a lot of Ralph Bakshi era uh, uh, animation <laughs> in it. You never would see it coming, but it's really special. So funny! So funny. <laughs> He was in. Anyway. Uh, he was, he was uh, also in Cinderella, uh, which was. I think that was when I was young. That might have been one of the other films that I had seen him in uh, with Jerry Lewis. Uh, he was the fairy godfather that um, always made me laugh. So, and you know what's interesting? This is you've seen Wreck It Ralph, right? Yes. So there was, and I didn't realize this. I was reading about this later. So Wreck It Ralph. Um, the um, the villain in Wreck It Ralph has very much a uh an ed win type of voice right it's yeah. kind of that that you know with the lift mm-hmm. and everything yeah um and i think that um uh alan tudyk does a great job of of that king candy voice but apparently there were a lot of people who clearly didn't know who ed win was who were up in arms about wreck it ralph saying that this was the worst homosexual stereotype that they'd seen in <gasps> ages in a film and i'm like are you guys kidding me it's Ed Wynn. It's an Ed Wynn impression. And oh, oh. it just made me so mad when when I heard these idiots going on and on about this. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. yeah. Context is everything. That's terrible. Yeah. Especially in context of the Disney films, because yeah. Ed Wynn was such a part of that history. Uh, Hermione Baddeley as Ellen the Maid and Rita Shaw as Mrs. Brill the Cook. They're both fantastic uh, uh, parts uh, uh, to of the the bank's household, and of course we're introduced to the bank's household because of sweet Katie Nana, who is trying to get out of here, played by Elsa Lanchester. Oh, how great! I just I don't know why I find it funny that um, that the Bride of Frankenstein is, is the one <laughs> who's running running away from all of this uh, madness, which I guess she does in that film too. So I know she so does. There you go. <laughs> I mean, it feels like there there have been a number of times that we have talked about. Uh, uh, we talked about her in Murder by Death. Yes, uh, yes, right. She was and Jessica Marbles, right? Ex- exactly. She was fantastic. Oh. Goodness, have we talked about her for anything else? I, I now it's. I feel I like we we did talk about her in the Bishop's Wife. Oh like, yeah. yeah, the she, Bishop's Wife, nineteen forty-seven. Yeah. That's right. Uh, it, so she's she and the Bride of Frankenstein for a movie we've never actually covered on this show. Uh, we sure <laughs> do talk about it a lot. Uh, and then Jane Darwell just popping in as the bird woman. Yeah. Uh, talk about such a, a small bit part, but a memorable one. And she's one of those faces that is just kind of iconic. She was in Gone with Wind. She was in The Grapes of Wrath. I mean, she's got, you know, 209 credits listed. And so she's she's one of those people that's been around. How to do an award season, Andy. I have a feeling this is going to be the longest part of our film or of our show. <laughs> this was definitely a, a popular... Well... I say it was definitely a popular film. This was at a time where awards were definitely not as um, pervasive as they are now. You know, where you see films that, oh, this was nominated, you know, for, you know, you know, 139 things and one for 60. You know, this is, it's a much smaller award season going on back in 1964, 1965. It had 20 wins and 17 other nominations. At the Academy Awards, it was nominated for a crazy number of awards. It really took uh, people's fancy. It was nominated for 13 
things. And it won for five. It won Best Actress, which I mentioned early, earlier with Julie Andrews. It won for Best Visual Effects, which we haven't even really talked about the visual effects. But I mean, there's some really great stuff going on here. Best Film Editing, Best Original Song, Chim Chim Cheree, which I found really interesting. It's almost one of those things where it could go any direction. And then Best Music, Substantially, uh, an Original Score. And then it was also nominated for uh, the eight others that it lost. Uh, most of them were To My Fair Lady for Best Picture, Best Art Direction, Set Decoration, Color, Best Costume Design, Best Director, George Cukor, Best Music, Scoring of Music, Adaptation or Treatment, Best Sound, and then it also lost to Zorba the Greek for Best Cinematography, Color, and Beckett for Adapted Screenplay. So, you know, it did well for itself. Uh, Julie Andrews, again, won for the Golden Globes. And uh, it just, it's, and the BAFTA Awards at, for that one, she got the most promising newcomer to leading film roles. So it was a, a very popular film. They yeah. did okay. And again, it's iconic. The it, it's, it has been um, lampooned and homaged to death. It has. Um, my favorite is the Simpsons episode. Uh, there's an episode called Simpson Califragilistic XB Annoyed Grunt XB Alley Annoyed Gruntitious. Um, and it was it was a nanny named Sherry Bobbins who comes and helps out Marge after Marge loses her hair due to stress. And there are spoofs of songs, uh, The Perfect Nanny, a Spoonful of Sugar, Feed the Birds, and The Life I Lead are all spoofed. Uh-huh. And it's wonderfully fun with Miss Sherry oh, Bobbins. Oh, Simpsons. Yes. So Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? Uh, what else has happened with it? Though we talked a little bit about it, that Travers says, "Don't you, you can't touch it again, not after this." Yeah, and even to the point where, um, when uh, Cameron McIntosh, the producer of the Broadway version, when he approached her back in the '90s uh, to make this, she said, "Okay, but only on the condition you only use English-born writers, and no one from the film production was to be involved." So <laughs> it's like, okay. Wow. Take have that. you seen any of the clips from the theatrical production? Have you ever seen it? I have not. Uh, I don't know. It, it, one of the special features on the version that I watched, they actually included Step in Time, the dance number uh, of the theatrical production um, as a special feature. And it is so cool. It's very strange. They've recast the chimney sweeps. or I, I don't know if they've recast or if this was the intention of the film and they just didn't quite, it didn't land for me. But they've, they have positioned the chimney sweeps as sort of guardian angels. That step in time is, it actually means... We are always watching over you, Jane and Michael, and if you need us, we will step in just in time. We will step in time. Huh. And and so it is a it is a song of these guardian angels dancing and saying, you know, we're here to help you when you need us, right? We're always here above you, watching you, stalking you. Looking in your chimney. Uh, and then they do this dance. And in the middle, uh, the, the Bert character, he, he is, they form this incredible sort of pyramid. Uh, and then he, out of the pyramid, starts walking up the, the side of the theater. And then he gets to the top and he turns and starts walking upside down and dancing upside down, wired to the ceiling of the theater. And he's doing a tap dance upside down above everybody else dancing on the floor. It is really cool uh, to watch them pull this off. It is it's it's a really neat adaptation. So holy cow, very interesting stuff. Well, and that goes to uh, you know, like I mentioned, we didn't really talk about the effects, but Disney was always pushing effects. That was something that yeah. was really big to him, and it's great to see that they they really kind of continued that um, that uh, 
idea in the in the Broadway musical, even if it wasn't really kind of uh, you know pushed by the Disney team, so to speak, with all the same stuff. Um, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, and and the fact that I mean, just the the wire work itself. I mean, we we certainly. I mean, you're right. The the effects, the wire effects, are great. Um, and, and the effects, I, I think the, the Edwin, um, Uncle Albert laughing scene where everybody's floating and just how the attention that they, uh, that they brought to make sure that, you know, every angle was, was using a different technique, a different special effect technique to actually trick you to think that, that just when you think, of course, they're using wires, then suddenly they do a close up and there are no wires. And they're they're In fact, they're on teeter totters, you know, floating around on teeter totters. I mean, it's just a, it's just a real masterclass. And, and not to mention the the fantastic sodium vapor process, which, you know, we're yeah. talking about supercalifragilistic and, and the fact that it's blending live action and animation. Well, that's how they were doing it. It was basically almost like an early green screen and it was this kind of a yellowish screen that um, when you'd film with that as your background, it just turned it, com- it, it didn't absorb any information. So then you could come in and, and get all the rest of the information added in. It's, I just find it so fascinating that they were pushing with such uh, amazing techniques and not to mention those. I mean, there's stop motion animation, re- film reversal. Like mm-hmm. you said, the sets upside down, there's audio animatronics, uh, you know, there's scaling. I mean, there's, there's just stuff happening all over the place. It it is very bizarre to watch a film of this era and to watch the behind the scenes and see the actors on black screen after yeah. the sodium vapor process. To to watch in supercalifragilistic, to watch Mary Poppins, uh, you know, interacting with the the horse and the the reporters, and they're not there, and she's nodding, but she's on a black screen that is such a perfect mask. Uh, it is it's really jarring to see it and recognize what they've accomplished with this film. Really cool. Absolutely. How'd it do at the box office? Well, not one to shy away at throwing money at projects that he believed would be successful, while Disney sunk $6 million into Mary Poppins, which is about $46.5 million in today's dollars. The movie opened in L.A. August 26th, 1964, opposite the Sandra D. Robert Goulet vehicle, I'd Rather Be Rich, and then slowly continued its release around the country over the next year. It looks like the longest run in any theater that it had domestically was at the Blue Mouse Theater up in Seattle, Washington, where it played for 31 weeks. So that's pretty impressive. Wow. The movie's play well into 1965 gave it the honor of being the most profitable film of 1965. And then as Disney, of course, so often did with his popular films, the movie was re-released in 1973 and then 1980. And between the three releases went on to make 102.3 million domestically, which is 436.7 million in today's dollars. It looks like it took another 44 million in internationally. So that gave it a total adjusted gross of 778.1 million. Clearly a favorite, the movie ended up with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $5.2 million, making back almost 17 times its budget. Wow. And another little interesting tidbit, its huge profits gave Walt the funds that he needed to buy a large portion of land in Florida and then finance the construction of Walt Disney World. That's fantastic. Pretty cool. Are there, are there, no, there no Disney Mary Poppins rides? Have there ever been a Disney Mary Poppins ride? Mary Poppins ride? I don't know. I don't think so. Mary Poppins ride. What's interesting is uh, that it's actually, it looks like, and this is probably to tie in with the new Mary Poppins Returns film, um, that Mary Poppins Cherry Tree Lane, they actually, uh, there are talks about possibly building it 
in uh, in uh, Epcot. Oh, that's awesome. Which is pretty interesting. And here, and I'll put this in the show notes, uh, that is, in fact, the tour of the Mary Poppins Disneyland ride that never was from uh, the Huffington Post. And there's a, there's a fantastic uh, little video there. Haven't watched it? Enjoy it. Wonderful. There's that. I am just delighted that you made me watch this movie again. And... That our I, listeners made you watch this movie. Our listeners actually made me watch this movie again. Yeah, because it was totally worth it. It is a delight to to watch, and it's an even bigger delight uh, now that I'm a crusty old man. <laughs> now that you're your own Mr. Banks. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. No, it's, it's funny, because this is a film that I remembered fondly, but it wasn't a film that um, I remember loving very much. And I think it's because... Oftentimes when I've watched it in the past, I'm kind of half watching it. You know, the kids are yeah. the kids are watching it and I'm like doing the dishes or or cleaning something or or whatever it is. And uh so I'm like, yeah, okay, I enjoy that. Um but really sitting down and watching it really gave me a whole new appreciation of it. I totally agree. I and that's that's you you said it. I mean, this is a movie that we watch out of the side of our eyes and that if that isn't a, a statement to the message of Mary Poppins itself, I don't know what is. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? Like that's the, that you're Mr. Banks too. Hashtag. Uh, I am. I am. I'm Mr. Banks. I'm Mr. Banks. Can we start that trend? <laughs> We're going to start that that trend. Uh, I think it's time, Andy, for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you'll see all the movies we've ever done. But of course, what you really want to do is swipe over in your show notes, tap on flickchart. It'll take you straight to this movie. I got to warn you, Andy. This movie did very well on my flick chart. I am not afraid to say it did very well on mine as well. And the game is afoot. <laughs> How well did it do? <laughs> First up, we have Mary Poppins or Star Trek Beyond. Mary Poppins. Yeah. Mary Poppins or Live Free or Die Hard. I got I to gotta tell you just a minute. You said Star Trek Beyond and Mary Poppins. And the, the context was so jarring just now. <laughs> you said Mary Poppins, and you might as well have said burp. Like, I had no idea what you were talking. Star Trek, what? That's a thing? No idea. All right. What, oh, that's go ahead. hilarious. Totally shook hilarious. my world. Yeah. Yep. All right, Mary Poppins or Live Free or Die Hard? Mary Poppins. I love that Die Hard, but it's Mary Poppins here. Mary Poppins or Aliens? aliens although i would like to see that movie mary poppins and aliens mary poppins as ripley (laughs) will she be able to save jane (laughs) michael's already dead (laughs) get under the bed now jane (laughs) oh there's a mashup that needs to be made so good all right mary poppins or the world's end mary poppins for me yeah, Mary Poppins. Ooh, smarts, though. I know. It's getting tough. Mary Poppins or The French Connection? I know. You're going to say Mary Poppins. I am. Yeah, I'll say Mary Poppins, too. <laughs> he says with much chagrin. <laughs> Mary Poppins or The Matrix? The Matrix. The Matrix, yep. Yep. Mary Poppins or another Star Trek treat? Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Undiscovered Country. Mary Poppins for me. Oh, Gavna. here we go. Here, Here we go. Yeah. All right. One, one two, two, three. Scissors. Oh. Hmm. Mary Poppins or El Secreto en Sus Ojos. The Secret in Their Eyes. Mary, Poppins. Mary Poppins. 
Oh, there it is. Mary Poppins lands number 50 out of 337 films. That is lower than I expected. I know it's my fault. It is your fault. It's at yeah. about 85% on our chart. Yeah, that's that's lower than it was. How to do it on your own? Go ahead. Do uh, say it, it at the same time? <laughs> sure. <laughs> what are, uh, we saying? are we saying the percentage? The number or the percentage? Okay. Right. Let's say the All percentage. Right, here we go. All right. Okay. One, one, two, two three, three, 97. 97. Oh! oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm at 67 out of 39.17. So for 98 percent, I'm at 32 out of 1,007. Uh, it performed very, very well. This is a delightful movie with a fantastic message. I think for so many ages, maybe not all ages, but a lot of ages. Maybe all ages. <laughs> it's a five star with a heart for me Absolutely. on Letterbox.com/slash the next reel. That's right. That's where it is for me too. Where do we go from here? It's, we didn't even talk about this in the beginning of the show, but we've. this is, our, of course, our new series. This is um, Musicals of the 60s. Yes. Uh, and, and so that's what Mary Poppins opened us up. What, what are we doing next? What's funny about this series that I don't think I even realized until, um, <laughs> until we picked them, and I was looking at them, like getting them ready to rent and watch everything. I'm like, they're all like women titles. Yeah. Mary Poppins, Young Girls, Rochefort is, is next, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and then- With Julie Andrews. Girls. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, we were joking on on uh, on our back channels about how it could have been a uh, Mary uh, or a uh, Julie Andrews series, because yeah. you know if we threw- um, my fair lady in because yeah. she could have been that role and this and thoroughly modern <laughs> million. I can't remember what the other one was that we were. Oh, I don't remember. There were, there were a lot. Yeah. But I don't remember. But anyway, yes. Uh, Jacques Demy's uh, 1967 film, the young girls of Rochefort. That is and our this, next musical. I think was a, a recommendation from, I think it was a recommendation of the good Ben lot. Uh, I think it may have been. All, yeah. yeah, I mean, he certainly was singing its praises, and I think we went to him because I think Jacques Demy did a couple um, '60s musicals, this yeah. and The Umbrellas of Sherberg, and he said, "Oh, Young Girls is definitely a more enjoyable, a more kind of a uplifting sort of story than Umbrellas of Sherberg." Well, uh, Andy, you know, uh, enough is as good as a feast. Yes. Yes. There you go. Uh, this is this was a fantastic conversation, and the, you know, here's something we uh, have we don't do, but we're going to start doing just as a reminder uh, that the next reel is a whole team of fantastic people, and it's uh, obviously the voices that you know with uh, Steve Sarmento and and Tommy Handsome and and JJ, uh, and, but it's also Stephen Smart who runs the the entire Instagram industrial complex that is. <laughs> You just mean uh, in, this room. In, Instagram. <laughs> Instagram.com slash uh, the next reel. And Ben Stierick, who's uh, helping us out over there. He's interning over there and working with Stephen and, and you. And, of course, Ben Lott, who runs things all a Twitter uh, and keeps us running over there. Um, it is it is really uh, fantastic to uh, work with these great people and to hang out with them virtually. And, and we love that, uh, you know, that people are interested in enough in the next reel to help us out. Uh, at the final credit is, of course, uh, Eli Catlin, who does the next reel themes, ragtime instrumental on this show, and uh, over on the film board, Crawlin' King Snake. Those are both by the great Eli Catlin you can find on SoundCloud. Fantastic. Yeah, so there you go. Links uh, links on the website, thenextreel.com. Just scroll all the way to the bottom and you'll find direct links to both of those tracks. Uh, if you If you are interested in them, he's very kind to offer those to us. 
there you go. Uh, that's all we've got, Andy, because you know when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. I thought going into this, Andy, that it would be hard to actually scrape the bottom of the barrel. I thought with a movie like this, surely the bottom, there is no bottom. There's nothing worth scraping. It's one of those movies, if it's not digital problems, you know, you're. it's a little trickier to find people who really hate it. And yet, but they're there. once we started <laughs> scraping and scratching, Andy, they start coming up. They start coming up. It's like you... It it's like you you get that uncomfortable bite on your cheek, and it starts to puff up. And then when you scratch it, you realize it's an egg sack full of spiders. That's what we've done here, and found page after page of juicy Amazon review. Fun stuff. I'd like to go first. I think mine is titled "Ha ha 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 ha." Give me a break by Game Boy Ten. <laughs> And I have to say, the date here is September 16th, 2002. And, and I say that, mm. well, you'll, you'll see. A little bit of prognostication going on in here. Gotcha. Game Boy 10 says, This is one of the worst films to hit the Disney Masterpiece Collection. It's an overrated movie for ages five and younger. The characters didn't interest me at all, and the Chim Chimity song was awful, and so where were the other songs? If Disney doesn't get their act together, they will fall, and DreamWorks will rise. (laughs) (laughs) I love that there's a little animation battle going on in here. I know. My favorite one, though, was the the most recent comment... (laughs) On that particular review is when your publisher releases your book on expert film criticism, I'm certain it will fetch at least a nickel on Amazon, <laughs> which is so <laughs> foolish because two ninety nine is the is the floor for selling a book on Amazon. So that's just ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Uh, well, I also have a one star uh, by Joan Crowland, who in 2015 had this wise bit of, uh, I want to say wise bit of riddle. Oh, to, uh, excellent. To it's like so, a game. You ready? It's it's or it's decipher the uh you know, I, I feel like maybe I'm mm. missing my decoder ring, but here you, you go. You need a codex. Thant. Love dealing with Amazoy. <laughs> Let me just read that again. Thant. That was it? That was the whole thing? <laughs> That's it. Thant. Okay, doing it. Love dealing with Amazoy. <laughs> what? <laughs> I think maybe they have problems with their DVD or something, but what? I don't what? know. It's hard to tell. Thant. I don't know what Thant is. I don't. I don't either. <laughs> uh, I. I will. I will also <laughs> say that there is a. There's sort of a subgenre of reviews in here, and I don't think I've seen so many of them. Uh, on on other movies that we've talked about, which represent the the people who are still rocking VHS players. Wow, um, yes. For example, one star by Reese Nutt says, first VHS was defected and have not received refund from Goodwill WM. 
Goodwill W. I don't know what that was, but that was dated June 3rd, 2015. Uh, so Reese not has a problem with Goodwill and Amazon is the stage. The drama unfolds. There definitely are those people, Pete. Definitely are. Thanks, Amazoy. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.